Section 10 of Brain and Personality. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Abrenica, World Audiobooks Podcast. Brain and Personality or the Physical Relations of the Brain to the Mind by William Hannah Thompson. Section 10. Brain and Personality Part 2. Meanwhile, before the advent of this personal agency, which deals so remarkably with portions of human brain matter, as to impart to them transcendent properties which they did not have before, nor ever could have spontaneously, the only organizer of nervous tissue which we have met was the afferent bringing stimuli from the environment or outside world. But the more we study the processes which result in these mind-linked changes in man with the same attention which has been bestowed upon the operations of the afferent, the plainer it becomes that their formative stimuli come not from without but from within, and are essentially unlike the workings of the afferent. Nothing savoring of purpose or design enters into the play of the afferent as it flows into the nerve centers with its sensations, any more than the currents of air causing the treads of an Aeolian harp to vibrate any musical meaning comparable to the airs of a birdie. Instead of that, the centers organized by the afferent for work performed that work with no design then does a watch purposely go when it's wound up. Automatism, pure and simple, is inseparable from the afferent in every one of its relations. Moreover, this afferent mechanism is congenital, entering the world ready-made without needing mind to work it. But to speak of a personality which thinks purposes and wills as automatic is a self-contradiction in terms. We need not appeal to metaphysics for our argument, because we now meet with another strong line of evidence that the personality can dispense with the most important means of afferent stimuli which nature furnishes, and yet make good their loss because the personality is independent and self-determining and hence can triumph over the most serious deprivations possible of its afferent mechanism for communication with the world in which it lives. This has been shown in some members of our race who have suffered from certain great misfortunes in early life, which, however, constitute in a way most instructive physiological experiments. To appreciate the force of these demonstrations, we must first take into account how much in each case was loss of life's equipment for mental development. Thus, it requires some effort to estimate how much education and human mind receives from the single afferent channel of the eye. To do this at all adequately, we must go back to the first news which the child gets from the outer world by sight. A series of impressions, first of color, then of form, then of distance, and lastly of definite objects are made upon the brain visual area until by repetition a vast store of picture memories are there laid out for life as so many objects lessons. How much, therefore, is the mind of a young child deprived of? If it becomes blind before this great afferent teacher could give it a single lesson. But for the education and direction of thought and feeling, the human being, different from the lower animals, gains more by the afferent channel of the ear than by that of the eye. The only exception to this law seems to be in the case of birds. Mr. Sclater sealed up the ears of newly hatched chicks, and not one of them could be induced to come to the mother hen 
who was excitedly clacking to them. The chicks were then placed where they could not see her, and their ears were unstopped, when as quickly as they heard her they ran round to where she was and were soon under her wings. But for the human infant, the loss of hearing is a terrible calamity. Besides being at first, it's only appeal to others. It is itself a relief to the child to cry. Hence, when it cannot hear its own cry, it becomes the more disturbed by its feelings, because loving looks and touch only imperfectly make up for kindly voice, tones, and words. We must not forget that to a human ear, however young, words soon have some meaning, more than parents may then suppose. Until a few months afterwards, they are surprised that their children know so much. If words once again begin to reach through the ear, the mind springs forward to its limitless inheritance of thought, and especially of feelings. It is the ear, not the eye, which moves the heart. We see with indifference a fish in its dying writings, but we cannot listen to cries of pain without emotion. The seeing of the eye supplies the intellect with more ideas than two sounds, not words, which come through the ear. But the intellect-informing eye makes more mistakes than all the afferent channels put together in the information which it brings. Its news has always to be revised and corrected by the other senses before it can be accepted. Thus it reports that a man is only a foot high when he is in a mile off. But the ears is always accurate. I have recognized a friend's voice when it came over 400 miles on a telephone wire as plainly as if he had been in the next room. Close the ear, therefore, of a child and it remains more a mere animal than when any other avenue with the outer world is closed, because it is dumb. If we should liken our apparatus for mind training to a boat which is to take us over the sea of life, the great afferent mechanisms of the eye and of the ear might then be regarded as corresponding to the hull and to the frame respectively. Can the personality, therefore, survive the complete wreck of both, and go on with nothing but the kill to cling to for the rest of the voyage? The answers would certainly be no, if the personality depended not only for its development, but also for its own origin upon its afferent mechanisms. If, on the other hand, the afferent has nothing to do with the personality except to inform it, the loss of the afferent will have no other effect on the personality than that of leaving it in ignorance. The personality would then be simply like one condemned to solitary confinement. That being so, if only some messages could reach him by any route, however unusual or roundabout, the personality would be found as complete and individual as ever. The conclusiveness of this demonstration needs a trained psychologist to appreciate it fully because he will knows how much each spatial sense contributes to the mental equipment of a human being, and therefore how much is lost when not one, but two of the chiefest life instructors of the mind are simultaneously lost. It is this which makes the autobiography of the celebrated Helen Keller of such intense interest, regarded purely from a psychological point of view, so important and decisive in their bearing upon the subject of our discussion are the facts illustrated by her story, that we feel justified in dwelling upon them at some length. It is not on account of her becoming such an accomplished woman with so many eminent men and women 
among her personal friends and correspondents that we do so, but because the psychologist see is such an extractive case. Physicians get into the way of looking at patients as so many cases of this or that disease, and so Helen Keller fixes the attention of a psychologist not from sympathy, for he has nothing to do with sympathy, but because she is a first-class scientific demonstration. Nothing, therefore, which we will quote from her published autobiography is for the sake of anecdote, but for what it implies about brain matter. I do not mean, of course, that physicians have their capacity for sympathy lessened by their pursuits. Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes was professor of the anatomy at the Harvard Medical School and a trained psychologist as well. Helen Keller thus writes, Life, page 135. I remember all the first time I saw Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes. He had invited Miss Sullivan and me to call on him one Sunday afternoon. It was early in the spring, just after I had learned to speak. We were shown at once to his library, where we found him seated in a big armchair by an open fire, which glowed and crackled on the heart, thinking he said of other days. And listening to the murmur of the river Charles, I suggested. Yes, he replied. The Charles has many dear associations for me. There was an odor of print and leather in the room which told me that it was full of books, and I stretched out my hands instinctively to find them. My fingers lightened upon a beautiful volume of Tennyson's poems, and when Miss Sullivan told me what it was, I began to recite. Break, 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 or die called gray stones, oh see. But I stopped suddenly. I felt tears on my hand. I had made my beloved poet weep and I was greatly disturbed. When 19 months old, Helen Keller had an attack, presumably of cerebrospinal meningitis, which left her totally and permanently blind and deaf, and hence dumb also. Till her seventh year, therefore, she was wholly dependent upon her senses of smell, taste, and touch for all her information. Hence, also, she could communicate her wants or feelings to others only by bodily actions, which she had learned to associate in her mind with states of pleasure or of pain. On this account, she was perpetually subject to fits of great excitement or anger, due to her inner feelings having such imperfect outlets for expression, while she was equally deprived of direction from others. The best of us, though equipped with every means of communication by speech, tone, gesture, and glance, with like return of the same from our fellows, are yet apt to be impatient at the slowness of others in understanding us. We can imagine, therefore, what it was to this child to have scarcely any way to explain her wants except by throwing things or herself on the ground. If the afferent is the origin of mental endowments, her father's pet dog and cat with full possession of sight and hearing, not to mention voice, were in better condition for development than she was. On March 6, 1887, Helen's teacher, Miss Sullivan, arrived, and her first endeavor was to begin teaching the child language by tracing on the palm of her hand the letters spelling the words doll and cake. Repetitions of these words' tracings continued until Helen could make them for herself, and by March 31, she could trace on her hand 18 nouns and 3 verbs without knowing, however, what they meant. 
On April 5, hardly a month from the beginning of her education, the awakening came. Miss Sullivan had her hold a mug in her hand at a pump, and as a cold water filled the mug and ran on her hand, the teacher traced anew the letters W, A, T, E, R on the palm of her free hand. Miss Sullivan writes, She dropped the mug and stood as one transfixed. A new light came into her face. She spelled water several times. The great step was gained when this blind, deaf, and dumb girl suddenly understood that the symbol traced in her palm meant water. She had got a word. From that moment, her personality was set free, like a prisoner allowed to leave a dark dungeon to go wherever he list. For now, for the first time, she knew that everything had a name which she could learn on her palm. The next morning, Helen got up like a radiant fairy. She has lifted from object to object, asking the name of everything, kissing her teacher for the first time in her gladness. It is touching to read that she tried to teach her dog by tracing the word water on its paws. From this beginning, her progress was rapid. In two years and a half, she was studying arithmetic, geography, zoology, and botany, and reading general literature. Meantime, she was asking questions about everything, and for its physiological interest in showing how a shot in mind, so to speak, like hers, will work when once in a possession of the Logos faculty, we make this extract. Page 370. Early in May 1890, fourth year of her training, she wrote on her tablet the following list of questions. I wish to write about things I do not understand. Who made the earth and the seas and everything? What makes the sun hot? Where was I before I came to mother? I know that plants grow from seeds which are in the ground, but I am sure people do not grow that way. I never saw a child plant. Little birds and chickens come out of eggs. I have seen them. All blind persons who have no memory of eyesight constantly speak of seeing, meaning, thereby correctly enough mental sight. Example, perceiving. What was the egg before it was an egg? Why does not the earth fall? It is so large and heavy. Tell me something that Father Nature does. There was no stopping her now. She must know the origin of things. What human being does not ask this question? Does this universal human trait come from any function of the automatic afferent or from the free personality. When her teacher in reply, page 371, told her that men came to believe that all forces were manifestations of one power, and to that power they gave the name God, she soon asked, Where is God? Did you ever see God? I told her that God was everywhere and that she must not think of him as a person, but as the life, the mind, the soul of everything. This pantheistic talk did not suit Helen. She interrupted me. Everything does not have life. The rocks have not life, and they cannot think. In March 1890, three years after she began with her first word, she commenced to take lessons in articulate speech. On account of their complete illustration of physiological fact, we will quote a few passages in which she relates her experience 
in learning how to make Broca's convolution to this work. Live, page 60. I shall never forget the surprise and delight I felt when I uttered my first sentence. It is warm. True, they were broken and stammering syllables, but they were human speech. My soul, conscious of new strength, came out of bandage. No deaf child who has earnestly tried to speak the words which he has never heard. To come out of the prison of silence can forget the thrill of surprise which came over him when he uttered his first word. Only such an one can appreciate the eagerness which I talked to my toys, or the delight I felt when at my call Mildred, her little sister, ran to me or my dogs obeyed my voice. But it must not be supposed that I could really talk in this short time. I needed Miss Sullivan's assistance constantly in my efforts to articulate each sound clearly and to combine all sounds in a thousand ways. Even now, she calls my attention every day to mispronounce words. All teachers of the deaf know what this means, and only they can all appreciate the peculiar difficulties with which I had to contend. In reading my teacher's lips, I was wholly dependent on my fingers. I had to use the sense of touch in catching the vibrations of the throat, the movements of the mouth, and the expression of the face, and often this sense was at fault. In such cases, I was forced to repeat the words or sentences, sometimes for hours until I felt the proper ring in my own voice. My work was practice, practice, practice. Discouragement and weariness cast me down frequently. But the next moment, the thought that I should soon be at home and show my loved ones what I had accomplished spurred me on. My little sister will understand me now. Was a thought stronger than all obstacles? I used to repeat ecstatically, I am not dumb now. Words are the mind's wings, as she wrote to Dr. Holmes. Helen Kohler's story of her life begins with a child in her seventh year, with each of the avenues of incoming and of outgoing speech close to her. After two months' language begins with one word lodged in her consciousness by a most circuitous brain path, the book ends with a young woman, a graduate with honors of Radcliffe College, versed in the sciences taught there, along with extensive reading in Latin, Greek, French, German, and English classics, passionately fond of poetry and of history, a writer of the purest English style, and a thinker of no mean order, as is sufficiently illustrated by a remark of hers. Page 295 Toleration is the greatest gift of the mind. It requires the same effort of the brain that it takes to balance oneself on a bicycle. But as we have already remarked, the physiological interest of her story is quite apart from the interest of her biography, great as that is. To a physiologist, it is an example of a living brain with the cells of the great visual area entirely and forever atrophied or wasted away, because that is what happens to those textural cerebral elements in cases of her kind. No word for reading could ever be registered in her angular gyrus nor in any neighboring visual cells, and just the same extinction of hearing cells was present in her temporal lobes, so that not one was left there to catch the sound of a word any more than that of any other sound. Broca's convolution for uttering speech therefore could not have a single telephone wire coming from it from either of these two great afferent centers. 
After a while, Broca's convolution began to be rang up by thousands of reiterated messages coming from a wholly unusual quarter in the brain, namely the center of the sense of touch. Practice, practice, practice by the hour at a time. The work of an indomitable personnel will finally make that convolution submit to this perpetual stimulation from the tactile area till it becomes ready to do what Helen purposes, whether to speak, to read aloud, or to write. Now it happens that the sense of touch is the most diffused of all the senses at the surface of the body, so that it is not localized in one organ, like the eye or the ear. On that account, it is the least specialized of any of the senses, so much so that it's an anatomical seat in the brain center. It's even yet not fully demonstrated. But itself, therefore, this sense could not afford the mind much definite information. But personality with a purpose can specialize anything nervous. The United States Treasury paid a high salary to a man on account of the one fact that while he could count gold pieces by the hundred thousand, with great rapidity. He would instantly toss out either a defective or a fraudulent coin because for such detection, his touch was infallible. In normal individuals, Broca's convolution is a constant communication with the afferent speech centers, those of the ear and eye, respectively by numerous nerve fibers passing between them with just that function. This is proved by the occurrence of many instances of world deafness or world blindness during life in which after death the injury was found not in the gray matter of the convolutions, but in the track of the white fibers leading from them. It is difficult on that account to decide in some patients with amphasia whether the damage has occurred in the gray cortex or in the subjacent conducting white matter, for the effects would be much the same in either case. Normally, however, there can be but very few, if any, nerve fibers connecting Broca's convolution with the area of the sense of touch. How are we supposed, therefore, that in Helen Keller's case, the afferent speech, which she learned through the sense of touch, made such abundant connections with the speech uttering center that she could talk to others in all the ways characteristic of the function of Broca's center in ordinary persons? We have to mention now in explanation certain facts about nerve fibers which we have not alluded to before. A nerve fiber is really a prolongation or part of the nerve cell from which it originates and is itself as much gray matter as the cell to which it belongs. Now one of the most important facts about these fibrils of gray matter is that they can grow and that they grow in the direction of the stimulus which courses through them. Thus, if a nerve be cut so that the two severed ends remain at some distance from each other, in a few weeks it is found that new nerve fibers sprout out of the stump end nearest the source of its origin until the gap is bridged. This property is taken advantage of in surgery to restore the sensibility and mobility of a part when that has been lost of severance of its nerves. Hence, while it is true that such regeneration does not occur apparently in the conducting fibers of the brain itself. Yet there is no improbability in the surmise that repeated currents of stimuli will in time project as it were. New tracks of fibers from one cerebral convolution to another, for that would be only in keeping with facts already ascertained of the development of great and important tracks of nervous fibers as a child grows.
Thus, in the human infant at birth, the great pyramidal tract, as it is called, which connects the motor area of the cerebral cortex with the spinal cord and by which all voluntary movements are executed, is far less developed than it will be four years later. As a child by practice learns to use its hands and feet, new nerve fibers by the thousand grow from the motor center of the cortex to go down and make connections with the motor centers of the spinal cord. Such, moreover, must be the case in the organizing of the speech centers in the speaking hemisphere of the brain. If either the reading angular convolution on the one hand or the word-hearing temporal convolution on the other had no fibers developed for connecting them with their corresponding speech uttering convolution, as well as with each other, the person might read or hear words, but could not speak at all. A fact clearly demonstrated by post-mortem findings in which the brain injury has been limited to the conducting fibers of Broca's convolution only, the speech centers themselves being intact. But this capacity for sending forth new fibers to make connections diminishes rapidly with age. Hence, when an apoplectic clot ruins the speech centers after 60 years of age, the loss of speech is almost invariably permanent because the corresponding speech convolutions in the other hemisphere not only are unable separately to learn their words, but the power to generate new connecting fibers between the convolutions, which is equally necessary for perfect speech is no longer available. End of chapter 10. Recording by Maria Abrenica, World Audiobooks Podcasts.